All right. As Scott said, really glad to get to hang out with you guys at least one last time before the semester's over. Hope Thanksgiving was good and uh, you guys are ready for finals week. Uh, we are going to try to wrap this whole chapter up this evening, and so we're going to be moving pretty quick through it. If you want to go ahead and go there to Ephesians 6. Uh, but before we do that, a quick story. When my son Hudson was four years old, he went to the preschool right over here, Sunnybrook Christian Preschool. A lot of us here at Sunnybrook on staff and all the kids over there, they just call it the White House because it's that little white-ish house over there on the playground, and so everyone just calls it the White House. And that's where Hudson went. That's where all of my kids actually went um, when they were at school there. And, uh, and so I, I, most days my wife would pick him up from the preschool, but there was one day a week that year, and I think it was Wednesdays for whatever reason, but uh, on Wednesdays it was my job to go pick Hudson up. And so I would go and, and do that, and, and I always had some place that I had to be, so I would go pick him up a few minutes early before uh, all the other parents. Which means every time I showed up to pick up Hudson, they were in the middle of their kind of last round of playtime. Uh, all the kids together kind of just goofing off either in one or two places. When it was warm outside, they would do it in the backyard of the White House over there. And then when it was cold, they would be in the gym right over here. And one day, it was here in the gym, and they were all uh, playing in there. And I came to get him early. And I don't know why I did this specific thing, but um, Hudson was over in this little group playing with his friends. And I just kind of ran through the group and scooped Hudson up onto my shoulder and just took off running with him. And all these kids, uh, I don't know how many of them knew I was Hudson's dad. I don't know if some of them thought, you know, some random child snatcher was running through the thing. But uh, just like spontaneously, his friends just started chasing me, just started running after me. And then uh, the other kids in the gym, like, look up, and they see all these kids uh, chasing a guy with a kid over his shoulder, and so they just started chasing me, too. And in that moment, somehow, this tradition was born. And literally every week of that year, I would go pick him up on Wednesday, and I would jump up, and I would, I would grab him in the middle of the plane, and I would just take off running, and every kid in the, in the preschool would just start chasing me everywhere I was going. And uh, let me tell you guys, uh, I was so much more athletic than all those little preschoolers. Uh, I mean, like, I was running around them in circles. I was juking them. I was stiff-arming little kids. Spoon move. They, couldn't, they could never catch me. They could never even touch me. I was, I was so much better than them. Um, and, and so we did this, like, every week. And I would just run around until I was worn out. And then Hudson and I would leave. And I would come in and the teachers would kind of expect it, right? And, and, uh, and then one day, uh, it was later in the year because it had gotten warm there in the backyard over there at the school. And one day I walk into the backyard over there and I look at the teachers and they just, they know, they just point me. Hudson's over there. And so I kind of sneak up on the group and uh, just like usual, I run through, I grab Hudson, throw him on my shoulder and I take off running. And just like usual, all the kids start chasing me. And just like usual, they can't touch me, right? Um, except for this one thing happened on this one day. As these kids are chasing me through that backyard, one kid has a ball in his hands. 
And that's not uncommon. Like, it became a thing where they just started, anything they had in their hands, they just started throwing at me at this time, okay? Um, but this kid throws, I think his name is Ethan, this kid takes this ball and he throws it at me as I'm running with him. And I don't know if he did this on purpose or intentionally. If so, this is amazing. Uh, but I th I'm pretty sure it's an accident. As I'm running, I have my left leg out in front, my right leg is in the back, and this ball hits my foot, my right foot which causes it to swing back and hook onto my left leg and causes me to start to tumble. And I've got in my hands, right, I've got Hudson there hanging over my shoulder. And so, like, my first thought is, like, I, oh, no, I'm going to, like, squash my son. And so I have to do this weird, I'm kind of tripping, you know, it's one of those things where you're tripping for, like, eight feet as you're trying to stay up. I realize I'm not going to make it through this. So I've got to do this kind of tuck and roll thing where I get Hudson tucked under, and then I do this kind of somersault thing and roll over onto the ground. We both land, and we're just sprawled out on the grass there. Um, I look up, Hudson's okay, everything's okay, and I'm like, oh, man, that was crazy. Glad we made it through that. But what I didn't realize in that moment is that I had not yet made it through that. Um, and that is because I had on my tail um, like 20 preschoolers who had five months of frustration of never being able to catch this man every time he came through that was just pent up inside of them. This, what I thought was laughter was apparently some kind of rage building up in them that I would never let them get close to me. And so, like you've seen in, in like Shark Week in the Discovery Channel where they pour like that chum in the water and the sharks just swarm it. Like that's what happened in that moment, right? Every preschool in that backyard just dogpiles me. Um, not every one of them. Some of them stayed up so they could like kick me and like throw stuff at me. And their kids in the pile like throwing punches and stuff. It was like every bit of all the frustration that they felt for so long. Um, and they just like let me have it. I kid you not, the teachers had to come and pull them off of me because I could not get up um, with all of them just kind of collectively swarming me. I severely... Uh, severely underestimated what I thought was all fun and games, what I thought was all just being silly. I think it was mostly silly for them. Uh, but, uh, but I had severely underestimated their level of intensity in this and that there was some level of seriousness. There was some level of, like, we are going to get this guy, and they made it happen. I underestimated them, and I was not prepared for what came after that. Um, tonight... Uh, what I hope to do is help you to avoid that. Uh, not being tackled by a bunch of four-year-olds, uh, but to help you avoid being unprepared and underestimating uh, your enemy. So we're wrapping up six. Before we do that, let me just give you the 30-second outline of the book of Ephesians. Uh, the book of Ephesians is built around these two things, describing the truths and implications of the gospel. The truths and implications of the gospel. So the first three chapters, Paul describes these key crucial truths of the gospel, that through Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God, welcomed into the people of God, not by anything that we have done, that in spite of the fact that we've sinned against him and turned away from him, that his great love and his great grace caused him to come and redeem us and bring us back and make us his. 
Um, and, and Paul prays that they would know and understand that great love and know what it is to be the people of God. And that's what he tries to do for three chapters, just outlines all those truths. And then in chapter 4, he moves into the implications of the gospel. The first verse of chapter 4 says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, if this is all that God has done for you, if this is who you are now in Christ, then this is what it's going to look like to live that out. These are the implications, and that's what he does for the next three chapters. And so we spent the last half of the semester talking about um, those things, like what it looks like to live in community and to, to love one another and to use our gifts to build up the church. And then we talked about the difference between living the old way of life in darkness and in the world and living the new one in Christ, in the light. And then we moved into, Paul moved us into what they call household codes, which is where you walk through different members, the kind of everyday relationships you have, and say, this is what these relationships now look like in light of Jesus. And we paused for a while when we got to marriage. Um, talking about husbands and wives, and we talked about dating and singleness. And now Paul is going to, at the end six, he's going to wrap up some of the household codes, a few more of the things, and then he's going to give them this final charge. And that charge is to ready themselves for battle, um, to recognize that whether they see it or not, whether they know it or not, that there's a war going on. And everything that he's just told them about their lives and what it's going to look like to live um, is, going to, is going to take effort. And they need to be on their guard. And, and so that's what he's going to do. We're going to spend the majority of our time talking about that tonight. But I do want to wrap up some of these kind of loose ends with the household codes. So let's jump into chapter 6 here, starting in verse 1. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So Christianity, by its very nature, by the truth that it's preached, and by the way Jesus lived, upended kind of the, the normal pecking order of society. Everything that was supposed to make you important and authoritative, uh, Christianity just kind of says it doesn't really work that way. The greatest will be the least, and, and the one who's leading should be serving, and, and all of these things. And so there was some concern um, from outsiders possibly, but even in the church. The church did not want the outsiders to look like they were about to wreck society that they were going to cause anarchy or political upheaval. Because if, if the pecking order is kind of upended, then what's to keep people from doing the right thing? What's to maintain order? And so the church kind of wants to make sure uh, all the believers and all the new believers understand, hey, this is how this works. This is how we live. We still live in a right and good way, kind of in the positions we've in. We just do that from a different perspective. And, and so he tells kids, tells children, hey, obey your parents. This is right. Obey them in the Lord, he says. So he's not disagreeing. The culture would say the same thing. Children, obey your parents. But Paul gives a different reason, a deeper reason behind it. He says you obey them in the Lord. And what he means is this. This is a good word just to keep in mind as we go back home to our families. Um, that the way you treat your parents is a part of your relationship with God. You interact with them in a way that honors them because you want to honor Jesus. And as you do those things, they work in tandem together. 
Um, Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy 5.16. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, that's not a promise that if you obey your parents, you're going to live a long time and things are going to go easy. Um, That's a corporate promise from Deuteronomy that tells the people of Israel, if you live like this, then community will build up right and there will be a healthiness in your community and it will cause you to... Um, your country, your nation to do well. And I think that that's a fair statement even for the community today and the church. If, if families are operating in this right way, then it's going to cause a health in the community. That's what he's getting at. Um, and then Paul moves into commands for fathers. Most household codes, Paul's not the only one to write a household code. That, that was fairly common. But most of them did not even address fathers. They addressed wives, children, and slaves. But Uh, Paul addresses husbands and he addresses fathers and tells them that they ought to love their children and nurture them, bringing them up in the instruction of the Lord. Then we go to verse 5 through 9, says this, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. There is no favoritism with him. Now, some people read that little section of scripture and cannot get their minds around how Paul could command these kinds of things. Obey, slaves obey your masters. Was Paul doing telling slaves to continue in their slavery and to obey their masters well with fear and trembling? That, that's something about that seems crazy. And indeed, there have been many people who have used passages like this to condone the wickedness of slavery throughout the world, and particularly in America, 250 years ago. Uh, Uh, we don't, unfortunately, have time to get into all of this tonight. Uh, Here's here's what I will tell you just briefly, uh, that the slavery that is described in the New Testament, that was especially there was a shift that had kind of gone on into the first century, is not what you have in mind when you think of slavery in your mind right now. When you think of slavery in colonial America that was based primarily on race and kidnapping people from their country and bringing them over. The Bible specifically speaks against that, actually, in 1 Timothy. I think it's 1 Timothy 1.10 uh, speaks against that. And so uh, the kind of slavery that's described is different from what you're expecting. If you want to dig into this, if you want to know more about this, we actually recorded a short little 15-minute episode on this, a kind of a little apologetics episode a long time ago. You can go back into our podcast feed. Um, I believe it's January. I have the date on it somewhere. I just want to make sure I get it to you. Uh, January 10th, 2018. And there's a title. It says A and 15. That's apologetics in 15. And it is, does the Bible condone slavery? So if you want to dig into that, you can go check that out. We don't have time to, to really explore that, but, um, but the short answer is no. Um, so uh, it's important to kind of catch, though, even <coughs> a lot of what Paul describes here, I think, um, applies very well to employees and employers today. He says, when we work, we ought to work as though we are working for Christ. Um, you've heard the golden rule before. Uh, treat others as you would want to be treated yourself. This actually moves beyond the golden rule. And Paul says, treat others as though they were Jesus. 
and then craziest of crazies, he says to the masters, um, do the same with your slaves, with your servants. Treat them, if Jesus were working for you, treat them like you would treat Jesus. And this is the mindset behind households. Like I said, the household codes, as Paul describes them, all put Jesus at their center and how that works. We do this as though we are working for or over or with Jesus in these things. Now to verses 10 through 13. Finally, and here is the kind of final, the last charge that Paul gives to these people. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, to take your stand. So after... Uh, describing what the Christian life looks like over the last uh, couple chapters, chapters 4 and 5. He's gone in-depth into what the Christian life looks like. Paul stops at the end and he just says, hey, I want you to know that what I've just told you will not be easy. Um, that, that it's not just going to come simply to you. You're going to have to fight for it. Because it's not just you here. There's, there's forces at work, whether you can see them or not. He says there's a war going on. It's not with flesh and blood. It's a war that you may not be able to see with your eyes, but it is very real. There is an enemy, there is an opponent that is going to try to hinder you from living the life that Jesus has called you to. That tries to stand in the way of the advancement of the church and the kingdom of God. And you need to be ready for that fight. More on this later. He says, be ready for the day of evil. By that, he's not talking about the last days. Um, He's not talking about some special day when everything gets really evil. He's just talking about any time evil arises, any time the enemy attacks, be ready for this. Verse 14 says, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit. Actually, let me stop there um, at verse 17. Uh, This is, of course, a very famous section of Scripture called the armor of God. And, uh, and, If you grew up in Sunday school at all, you probably uh, heard a number of lessons about this, breaking these down. This is kind of a fun one to teach kids because you get these object lessons with all these armor pieces. We're going to kind of look in depth at what each one of these signify and and what that means and looks like in real life. We'll do that on the other half of this. But there are two things you need to know about this section uh, as we kind of move through it. The first is this, that Paul seems to be drawing this imagery maybe from two places. Paul, honestly, as he's writing this, is probably chained to a Roman soldier right now. And so he can actually like look to the left of him and see these pieces, a lot of these pieces kind of with the soldier, and be thinking about that stuff. Um, but, but more than likely, the main thing that's calling this to mind is the book of Isaiah, where there's uh, a few different places uh, God is referenced as strapping on his armor, the armor of God. 
and goes out to do his work and to see his will done. And so uh, that, that seems to be what he's looking like, which would mean what he's actually doing here is he's calling them to be like God. Uh, that's, that's what he did in uh, chapter 4, verse 24, when he said, you've been called to put off your old self and put on the new self, created to be like Christ. So he's just doing that again, but now he's using this battle imagery to give them a sense of urgency in it and a sense of importance in doing those things. Um, the second thing you need to know is that the you, all the verbs in this, in the Greek, are plural. So when he says, you do these things, he's talking in plural. So it's actually less of a Jared needs to put on the armor of God, and Alyssa needs to put on the armor of God, and it is you, church, you, body of believers, arm yourselves for battle, because as one body, we are going to war together. Verse 18 through 20 says, Pray at all times in the Spirit, with every prayer and request, and stay alert, with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I, sh- as I should. Um, something to kind of notice in this is we talk about this. If you ever see kind of repeating words in a section, it's just good to notice that. Sometimes circle those. But look in verse 18 at the all-encompassing language Paul uses. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. He just wants to basically say prayer ought to be, ought to be a critical part of every aspect of your life. Um, that it ought, to, it ought to envelop what you are doing as a church. And then he says, and pray for me that I will be able to speak the message that God will give me words to say and I'll speak them with boldness. These couple of verses have really kind of stuck with me this year. There's a couple of things that are fascinating to, to me about it. First of all, Paul has been preaching the gospel now for about three decades. And Paul's been through like every kind of trial and stuff you can imagine. And when you read about him in the Acts, he does not seem to be a guy who gets real nervous about what he's going to say. And yet after three decades, he says to the Ephesians and to other churches receiving this, pray for me that I won't wuss out. Pray for me that I will be bold enough to speak these words, that the, the door will be open for me to be able to speak it unhinderedly. It's fascinating, by the way, that the, this is the, those are the same words that end the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts ends with Paul chained to a Roman soldier in Rome, and preaching the gospel unhinderedly. And so what we see is the reason, Paul would say, the reason if you read through Acts and you see me preaching boldly is because I'm asking people to pray for that, that these people's prayers are being answered. And so um, if, if sharing the gospel with people freaks you out a little bit, if you worry about not having the right words to say when you go home uh, to friends or family members and you're nervous about that, um, join the club with Paul. Because he felt that way too sometimes. And, and that's why we pray about those things. Um, I've, by the way, prayed that prayer for us a fair amount this year. Um, that, that God would give us opportunities and that we would have a boldness in it. Let me wrap 
up with this. He says, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. So Tychicus is a friend. He's from Asia Minor, which is where this letter is going. And he's the one who's carrying this letter. They don't have mailmen back then, so he's the one carrying this letter. He's going to give them this, and then he's going to update them all with Paul's condition, he says. I'm sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Paul ends this beautiful letter to the church. Um, But we're not quite done with it. We've got 20 more minutes to walk back through that armor of God section and explore that in detail and then talk about that uh, for us over the next couple months. But first, we'll take a quick break. So... Uh, I told you that we're going to tackle specifically kind of this armor of God section, uh, verses 10 uh, down through 21. Thank you. But especially the, uh, especially the section kind of focusing in on the armor of God. This is a section of Scripture that has fascinated Christians for a long time. And I don't know, I don't know exactly what it is. I, I, I assume kind of the imagery and the object lessons just kind of stick with you. Um, but it's not just Sunday school teachers. A number of people have kind of devoted some time to speaking about and writing about this specific section of Scripture. Some of them have given a lot of time to talking about this uh, section of Scripture. There was a uh, Puritan minister named William Gurnall uh, in England back in 1655. And he wrote, uh, during that year, he wrote a treatise on these 11 verses, on the armor of God. He wrote this kind of whole little treatise thing on it. The title of the treatise was this, uh, The Christian in Complete Armor. Okay, not a bad, not a bad uh, title for, for a little treatise. The Christian in Complete Armor. Or complete armor. Uh, this was the subtitle for this book. Um, and this is real. The saints war against the devil, wherein a discovery is made of that grand enemy of God and his people, in his policies, power, seat of his empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against the saints. A magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor, and taught the use of his weapon together with the happy issue of the whole war. That is the subtitle of William Gurnall's... uh, and, and if that subtitle gives you any clue as to where this was going to go, he called it in his little kind of introduction, he called it, or in his little preface there, he called it a, a gift, a, no, a little present to his congregation. So he was a minister of a church and he wrote it for his congregation, so he called it a little present for his congregation. It was not a little present. It was three volumes long, 261 chapters 1,472 pages on these 11 verses uh, in depth. I hope to be a little bit more brief than him tonight, at least, as we get into it. We'll see. We'll see. Um, Paul's final charge in these verses are basically built around what you see in the first two, verses 10 through 11. Okay? So verses 10 through 11 say this. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm in Ephesians 3 there. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 11 says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. 
put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the, against the schemes of the devil. That's basically the breakdown into these three things. Number one, be strengthened. Be strengthened by the Lord. Two, uh, the way you do that is by putting on the full armor of God. And three, so that you can stand against the devil. This is what you do. This is, why, or this is how you do it. And this is why you do it. So this is, the, the rest of it is basically kind of outlining and filling in the gaps on those. Tonight, I want to give you this charge. Uh, I want to give you this encouragement as you go off uh, to uh, Christmas break. But I'm going to do it in reverse order. I want to start here with uh, number three there so that you can stand. And so here we go. Number one, stand. Number one slash number three. Stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, the Bible is very clear about this. Uh, that Satan has been defeated. There are some views of Christianity that look much more like uh, Greek dualism, where there are these two ever-present, ever-powerful forces that are constantly against each other, dark and lightness, uh, God and Satan duking it out for all of history. But that's not the biblical picture. Uh, the biblical picture is that uh, Satan and you can count everything else in all of creation for all time ever is a um, distant, 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 distant second isn't even the right word uh, compared to God. That the battle is not close. Um, and, and also that because of what Jesus has done on the, cr the cross that Satan has already been defeated. Um, that it's already, his fate is already sealed, but the Bible's also clear that uh, that doesn't mean he's going down without a fight. He knows that he is going down, but he's going to go down swinging. He's going to try to bring as many people with him as he can. First Peter 5.8 says this, that we ought to be alert, Peter says, for your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And this is actually kind of the idea that Paul's getting across here. What he wants them to do, he'll actually use that same word here in just a little bit. Be alert. Don't let your guard down. Be ready. Be watchful because the most dangerous kind of enemy is the one you don't recognize. And the most dangerous kind of war is the one that you don't know you're involved in. That's why the uh, most deaths ever on American soil, at least at the hands of a foreign government, took place at Pearl Harbor, um, where all these ships are sunk and 2,408 Americans died in that one hour and a half battle. And the reason why is because they did not know that they were already at war. And when you don't know that you're at war, you stand vulnerable. Um, did you know that we've been praying for you. Did you know that in the week or two leading up to this break that you all have been on our hearts and minds and that we've been praying for you and in the newsletter that I sent out, I spent, uh, I asked people for this specific prayer. Actually, Randy asked people for this specific prayer. And anytime I ask, people ask me what they can be praying for, for us or the ministry, I've been giving them this same prayer over and over again. And that is... Um, that over this Christmas break, after what has been a really, really great semester, um, uh, the prayer that we've been praying is that we would not lose ground. And specifically for you, that you would not grow apathetic or spiritually lethargic over the next month and a half, two months of your life. Because I know personally, 
uh, not just as a former college student, but as, a, as an adult, I, I know personally how easy, for whatever reason, it can be sometimes for this time of year for me to let the foot off the gas a little bit and, and to then not just kind of do that, but then to let my guard down and to find myself drifting off either into spiritual apathy or into outright sin. And um, our, our concern, what has been on our heart, is that that might happen for us, that we would lose momentum, that we would lose so much of the ground that we've been able to see as we've seen so many of you grow strong. We've seen so many new people come into this, and we've seen opportunities for evangelism taking place, and, and our concern is that we might lose that. Not, not that we would lose numbers, although I guess that's part of it because we care about the people, but, but that we, uh, the concern is not for Scott and Randy and Alec and I that our ministry is going to get smaller. No, the, the concern is for we, this group right in here, that we as a whole might fall back a little bit in our faith, that we might take our eyes off of Jesus in this, and so we've been praying for you. Um, we told you a month ago this truth, um, that no one drifts into maturity. No one accidentally becomes godly. No one accidentally grows up. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because you never sit neutral. There is an enemy that is constantly trying to push you further and further away from the God who loves you and saved you. And so we want you to be aware of that and to be ready so that you would stand firm against the devil's schemes, that whatever he may try to throw at you to bring you back into old habits, to bring up former temptations, to bring in conflict or anxiety or fears in you that do not need to be there, that you will be ready to stand firm against those things when they come. Now, walking backwards, um, the way we are able to do this is by putting on the armor of God. I'm just going to walk kind of through each of these little things that Paul mentions in this text and talk a little bit about what we believe them to be, what he means when he says these things. Uh, the first is this, the belt of truth. He says, stand firm with the belt of truth around you or with truth like a belt around your waist. Uh, the idea probably here was this leather apron that Roman soldiers used to wear. They kind of guarded their lower abdomen, their, um, their organs down there. This is probably a little bit of what um, at least his readers would have had in mind when they, sing these th uh, when they read these things. Um, but the question is, what does he mean by belt of truth? Specifically, what commentators get into is, is he talking about God's truth? That is, the truths that we know about him, the truths of Scripture, the truths of the gospel. Or is he talking about our truth, that is, like, our integrity and our ability to walk in truth and to speak truth rather than deceptively in those things? More than likely, this is probably a bit of both. And that's because Satan's main form of attack, especially as one who has been stripped of his major power by Christ's death and resurrection, his main form of attack is deception and, and accusing people to deceive and accuse, uh, to, to bring shame into our lives. Both of those take place through lies. You will hear lies when you go home about who you are. You will hear lies when you go home about what will make you truly happy. You will hear lies that tell you when you're struggling you need to keep those things to, your, to yourself. You will hear lies that tell you when you fail that no one else needs to know about those things or that you're the only one who does those things or that if you could do those things then how could you really call yourself a Christian? 
We defend ourselves from things like that by clinging to the truth about who we are in Christ Jesus, by clinging to the truth about how Jesus is the one who truly satisfies, about what he has done for us. And we defend ourselves by bringing our sin to light. That sin thrives in secrecy and darkness, and so we seek to bring it out into the light, into truth, by bringing brothers and sisters in on this battle with us. So we gird ourselves with this belt that is truth. The second thing Paul mentions is this uh, breastplate of righteousness. Strap on righteousness around your chest as though it is a breastplate. This idea comes specifically from Isaiah 59, 17. I mentioned that he gets these ideas from Isaiah 59. He says in there that Yahweh is strapping on a breastplate breastplate of righteousness as he goes out to do his work in the world. And so the idea here is that we would put on the character of God, that we would look like God, that we would form ourselves into habits and virtues um, that look like Jesus. Then he goes on and talks about the sandals of gospel readiness. Um, He says it uh, in this, to have your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Now, again, there's actually two different ways that this could go. Some people think that he's talking about, uh, when he talks about this, that like the gospel itself is the sandals. And therefore, the idea would be make sure that you're standing firm on the gospel. Um, Some people think uh, that he's talking more about a readiness to bring the gospel to others. Uh, Both could be true. Um, But that first idea of standing firm on the gospel, that will come to us a little bit later in some of the other elements. So I think that he's probably talking more about this second. Actually, he's probably borrowing from Isaiah 52.7, which says, How beautiful on the mountaintops are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Those of you who were there when we were in Romans last year, remember Paul uses this verse in Romans 10 to talk about bringing the good news of Jesus to people. Um... For some of you, your biggest mission field actually takes place in the next week. Uh, That when you go home, you are going to be around people, family members or friends or whoever else, um, who do not know Jesus. And some of your greatest opportunities will be there. And I know and I get, I told you guys a couple weeks ago, my, my youngest brother is not a believer. And I get the desire to go home and just want to chill. And just kind of turn my brain off from pushing forward. But I want to encourage you um, that you would go home with the sandals of gospel readiness strapped on. That you will go home knowing that there may be opportunities. And if the Lord presents them to you, that you will be ready um, to point people to the love of Jesus by the way you live. And by the truths that you may have an opportunity to speak over that time. Second thing Paul mentions is the shield of faith. Now the emphasis here is on the object of our faith. That is Jesus and his promises. So what defends us, he says that the shield of faith is used to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. Um, the, the, the word that he specifically uses, you don't need to know this, but I'm going to tell you. Um, there's the different kinds of shields. So there's like a little round one. Most of the Roman soldiers didn't use that um, during this time at least. They used this big one that was about four feet 
uh, tall and about two, two and a half feet wide. It was this big rectangle thing that was uh, wrapped around in a couple different layers of leather. And often before, our, uh, before they would go into battle, they would soak that shield in water so that then when arrows would be shot with tar and pitch and, and, and lit on fire would be shot at them, they could together make this by basically gigantic wall with the first row holding it up in front and the second row holding it up above them. And, and if it was soaked in water, then it extinguished those arrows. And what Paul is getting at here is what defends us from the attacks of Satan. When you go home and you are tempted to fall back into the same sinful patterns you used to live into, when you find yourself feeling shame, when uh, anxiety begins to overcome you unnecessarily, when doubts about your faith or about the Word of God begin creeping in, um, what saves you is not just believe more. When he says that we use the shield of faith, he's not saying you just really got to believe. You just really, really got to believe more. Um, what he's actually calling your attention to is the object of your faith, the thing that you're placing your faith in, and that is Jesus and his promises, what he's done for us. It's, uh, it's what he's done. So whether our faith is big at the time or whether it is struggling at the time, we look to him, who he is and what he's done. I've told you guys before, my oldest likes to ask a lot of questions uh, about uh, Bible stuff and about those kinds of things. And she was asking, uh, this question, she was asking me the other day, is it okay to doubt? Is it ever okay? Does God get mad if we doubt? Uh, to wonder if it's all true. And, and she was thinking about the time when John the Baptist, she was asking me, because John the Baptist, he sent the guys to Jesus and asked if Jesus really was the guy. He kind of wondered if Jesus, was that okay? Was Jesus mad at him? And, uh, and I told her, I, I really do believe that doubts come, and it's okay to have those doubts. But what John the Baptist did was he did not look in at himself to see, how much can I really buy this? And can I really muster this up? And does this seem to sit right with me? No, what he did was he sent people to Jesus. And I told her, it's okay to have those doubts as long as the person you turn to for your answers is Jesus through his word and through his people. And, and what we do when we are attacked, when we feel temptation, when we feel fears, we remind ourselves of who Jesus is. We remind um, ourselves um, that he cares for us, that he's working in us to make us better, that he gives us abundant life and not the things that are tempting us. We remind ourselves that he forgives us even in our worst sin. We remind ourselves all of these things, even if I don't feel it really strong in that moment. It's not measured by how much I can really believe it. It's measured by the fact that I choose to hold to it even if I struggle to feel it. Lastly, he mentions the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And I believe these two things are coupled together. And the reason why I believe what he's talking about here is the gospel. Because I don't think he's saying that what you need to do is put salvation on. They already have salvation on, so why would he tell them to put that on? I think he's talking about, when he says putting on the helmet of salvation, he's talking about clinging to the hope of salvation. To look to what God has done for you, and no matter how hard things are in front of you, to know the future, the hope that you have in front of you. And he says specifically that the sword is the word of God, the word of the Lord. But the, the Greek word that he uses there for the word of the Lord is this word rhema. And usually when Paul uses the word rhema, he's talking about the proclaimed word, the proclaimed gospel that is preached. And so he says, you hold to the sword of God, which is the proclaimed 
gospel about this. And we'll get into the practical steps on some of that in just a sec. But first, let me visit this first instruction that he gives to them, which is this. Be strengthened in the Lord. Your translation, if you don't have the CSB, might say be strong in the Lord. But the CSB actually gets it right because this Greek word is two things. It is present and it is passive. It's present tense and it's passive. Uh, Passive means that it's not something I do. It's something that is done for me. It is something that is done to me. So he says be strengthened in the Lord. Uh, and, And he says not just that, but be strengthened by him and his vast strength. Jesus has plenty of it for you, Paul says. So let him be your strength. And the other thing is it's present, which is continual. Paul's not describing a quick fix that you go off and get to kind of get yourself plugged in and ready to go for the week or for the day. He's not describing a quick vaccine you get as you go into flu season uh, or COVID season or whatever. And then you said he's describing a life that is continually plugged into Jesus and receiving the resources and strength from him that I need to move on. Um, This is done to us. So we should be vigilant in our Christian life. And we can cultivate disciplines to help us in these things. But the reason we're able to have confidence is that we know that ultimately, even as I am cultivating these disciplines, even as I am seeking to be vigilant, that my strength does not come from me. It comes from Jesus. And because he has a lot of it, I can have confidence that no matter what is thrown at me, At any point in my life, I have the ability to move through it and become more like him. Because it's not my strength that will pull me through. It is Jesus and his vast strength working in me. So, how do we do this? Specifically, how do we do this in two weeks? How do we do this over the break? Let me give you three quick things that we can do so that we can be strengthened by putting on the armor of God and stand against the enemy's schemes. Uh, The first is we do this with a plan for the word of God and for prayer. You cannot use a shield of faith. You cannot wrap yourself in a belt of truth. You cannot place on a helmet of gospel salvation with no scripture to draw from. Your shield of faith, as I said, is not how much you believe. It is what you believe. Your helmet of salvation is the truths of the gospel, and so is uh, the belt of truth. And so we need to have a plan for having this in us to be able to draw from it. I want to encourage you that you would have some idea over this Christmas break of some sort of plan for how you will be in the Word of God and let the Word of God in you. Whether that be one of the Advent series that we've kind of placed out, uh, Sunnybrook's Advent devotionals with some text to read, whether that be a book of the Bible that you want to read through, whatever it, whatever it is, I, I hope that you will have a plan, a book that you want to go through, a time of day that you plan on doing those things, and that you will um, get that in front of someone who can ask you about it. Um, second is you need to have a plan for some level of prayer. Paul's emphasis on prayer at the end of this is no coincidence. Um, Pray at all times. Persevere um, with all perseverance for all the saints. And that leads me to this next thing. Um, We will do this not just by having a plan for praying the word, but we will do this together. Um, We go into battle together. We go into battle for one another, um, praying for one another, encouraging each other, lifting one another up, even if we can't be with each other. 
Uh, one of the reasons that the Christmas break can be so tough is because you have these brothers and sisters who have walked with you through some good and bad and up and down things and that you've grown alongside of in community as you've been growing and learning together and then you split apart from those and you go back to a lot of relationships with people who don't who have not seen what Jesus has done in your heart in the last semester. And they remember old you. And they want you to act like old you. Or they expect you to act like old you. And it can be hard without your brothers and sisters around you. And so I want to encourage you that you will have some people in your life from here or somewhere um, that you are asking to pray for you in specific ways. Could you pray this for me and this for me? And can I pray? What can I pray for you? How can I be praying for you that you will stay in touch with them, that you will pray at all times for all your brothers and sisters with all perseverance? And if you don't exactly know what to pray, use the prayers in the book of Ephesians. Use the ones that Paul read here just at the end. Use the one, uh, Ephesians 1, 19 through 20 or 18 through 20. Read the one at the end of Ephesians 3 about grasping the great love of God. Pray that for your brothers and sisters here. Third thing, we will do this by doing what Martin Lloyd-Jones, this famous Welsh preacher from like the 60s and 70s, used to say, and that is that you need to stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. Uh, When you go home and you begin to uh, hear different things, that you wake up in the morning and your brain starts to speak to you about the things that you need or the things that you want or the things that are true about you, that you are a mess who will never have your life together, and that you're just going to go back and do the same things you do. You know, hey, you can try your best. You know that spend enough time at home, you're going to go back to doing the same things you used to do. Um, When you feel that desire to just ease off and just kind of stop trying to push forward in your faith, Um, stop listening to yourself, the things that you tell yourself, I'm so dumb, I'm so um, foolish, I'll never get this right. Stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. Not about how good you are, because that's that's not true, really. And it's not going to help you very much. Uh, But about how good Jesus is, and about the work that His Holy Spirit is doing in you, making you good, making you a different kind of yourself. Preach to yourself about who you are in Christ about the fact that you are an adopted son or daughter of the king, about the fact that you are made to be like him, about the fact that you are holy and you belong to him, about the fact that you have his own strength at your disposal, able to help you through good and bad, able to help you through uh, easy and difficult. Preach to yourself and do not listen to yourself this Christmas break. We love you guys. And uh, we want to be praying for you. We will be praying for you. And, and you're going to hear from us this break. We're, we plan on reaching out to each and every one of you. Um, but we hope you don't just wait for that. If there are ways that we can pray for you, most of you have our numbers. If you want it, come get it from us or send us a, a DM on the group me or whatever that is. Let us know um, if there's things we can be praying for you. If there's things you need help with, we want to be able to do these things. Um, our goal is that you and that as you together, plural, becomes we, that we would rest over this Christmas break. But that rest would not mean apathy. That rest would not mean aimlessness. Um, But that we would rest in Jesus as we move towards Jesus over this break. That's our prayer and hope for you. And I'm actually going to pray us out by asking that exact thing for you. Dear God, for my brothers and sisters in this room and for me, 
you know, Lord, my own confession to you over the last couple of days as I have been reading through this text and recognizing the level of apathy that has already set in me. Um, and just sometimes a, a lack of desire for spiritual things for you and your word and to grow. Um, I, I, I just assume that not all of us, but some of us will feel that over this break. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would enable us to do what you've called us to. God, by your spirit working in us, may we draw strength from Jesus. And may we stand firm, strapped on with the full armor of God, so that we will be able to stand um, amidst and against the devil's schemes. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they go home, some of them the people who do not know you, and I pray that you would open opportunities for them to talk about Jesus. Um, and I pray that as those opportunities come to us, Lord, that you would give us boldness to speak those things clearly. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.